0: Travel to Europe is off limits for the time being, but we can still keep the flame of Wonderlust alive with the Virtual Vacation Podcast. Join host Jack Bauman, founder of Guidester, and radio show host Arnold Stricker every other week as they dive into new destinations exploring their unique history, culture, and special vibe. If you think traveling in the modern world in the United States is bad, just think about how to travel in the ancient world. What were they doing back then? How did they get around? We've got Brian Cunningham, who's been a student and educator of history for over 16 years with us on Virtual Vacation with Guidester. In that time, he's worked in almost every aspect of the field, from professional writing to archaeological work to university teaching. He's currently a professor working within the UNC system in North Carolina. Welcome, Brian, to Virtual Vacation with Guidester, and we got the Guidester himself also here, so we're going to have the Battle of the Archaeologists.
1: (laughs) Happy to be here. Thanks for having me
0: great to see you again brian
1: great to see you too jack as always thank you arnold for that introduction as arnold said brian's been in history for a while we actually met in our uh, master's degree in cardiff wales a few years ago now brian it's crazy you. this is 10. 10 this september will be 10 that's wild man a decade yeah Do you remember how we met we met in class. So specifically, how did we meet? I think it was an orientation. It, and, was. Yeah, it, was, it was an orientation. And I think I said something and you obviously did. my American accent <laughs> stuck out. Well, and we, I turned around and, and I said, where are you from? Where are you from? Where are <laughs> yeah. you headed? And now you do that for people. Where are you headed? Where are you headed? Yeah. And then just oh. the rest, the rest is history. So yep. Brian and I met in Cardiff, Wales, as I said, studying ancient Greek and Roman archaeology. And we, we had some good experiences together, to say the least. We were studying history, living the history in Wales, which was, there's plenty of ancient ruins. We're not far from an ancient Roman garrison there, actually, in Rome. Mm-hmm. There's, what, three major garrisons in Britain. Is that right, Brian? Three major ones.
2: You've got Isca Augusta, which is now Caerleon, And you have York, which was there in and then you had
1: Diva Vitrix, which is now Chester. And you lived there for a couple of years, too, actually, as a Roman tour guide.
2: I did. I lived there for two years. I was the only, still the only, as far as I know, American Roman in Chester in all their
1: history. I love it. Yeah, see, you and I are both cultural norm breakers. We like to, to challenge the status quo. And most people don't go to, most Americans don't go to Wales and so you mm-hmm. and I had this unique opportunity to be these only two. There was Renee, who's from New York, but she's actually Jamaican. So she's American, but she's culturally Jamaican. So you and I were really the only two cultural Americans in Cardiff, which is a hotbed for Europeans, but not Americans. And you and I had this great experience, too. To get to know that culture and stand out. And we definitely had some good times, which we won't share. To our benefit, we can say that to say the least.
2: Everybody wondered about the two Americans. There was a mystique about it. What we were doing there,
1: why we were there, right? Yeah, we made a lot of friends and we met a lot of people because of it. So there were people. Do you remember people would come up to us? I've never met an American before, and they mm. were just so excited to meet us. So in Wales, the cities are really in the south. In the middle, there's very few cities. In the north, there's a couple on the coast. Mm-hmm. So the only real cities is Swansea and Cardiff and Newport. When the south, we gotta go to Bristol yeah you got when that's in England, but in Wales, yeah, so these people they come from the they call it from the valleys right they come from the valleys into the cities, and yeah. they haven't seen much outside of a few sheep or more than a few sheep and but beautiful yeah. countryside beautiful place, so let's delve beautiful in most beautiful country it really is let's let's delve in into the meat of this episode, travel in the ancient world
2: yeah. I think one of the best place to start when you're talking about travel in the ancient world is to Get a conception of what travel in the ancient world actually meant travel as we know it was not possible and not only for the many but for reasons that were both practical financial safety related so many things so where we are in this day and age is unlike any other so let's look at who was traveling who was traveling in the ancient world we can say for a fact that it was the wealthy elites the ones that had money. We know that it was the merchant class that was trading things from one point to another. And that was one of the vitalization points of ancient Greece, ancient Rome, Persia, everywhere you can imagine. Sometimes, rarely, it was commoners, people who had saved up money for amounts of time. It could be a long amount of time. They really rolled the dice and said, we're going to take this day out do this for ourselves or for our family. And more often than not, because of their orders, the military traveled more than anybody else across the ancient world. saw more than anybody else could be positioned in Britain one day, could get orders to be in Germania the other day, and then down into Anatolia the next.
1: And the Roman road system made that possible. That was Absolutely. the best road system the ancient world had ever seen by at- far. We haven't even, our roads are different and certainly longer, but in some ways, not even as good, not as straight, not as not as accurate and precise. And they could span thousands of miles without moving an inch hardly.
2: Thousands of miles. But you have to imagine what the Roman conception of themselves was, is they were never going anywhere for any period of time. For all eternity, Rome was going to be around. So the roads had to be as permanent as they thought themselves culturally to be. And those roads, as you having been all over the place and seen them with your own two eyes, still stand as strong and as true
1: as they were back then. And if they're not for a little cleanup, you could still travel them nowadays with ease. They do. Via Appia La Via Appia Antica in Rome yeah. is a molto bene a molto belle bella. Yeah. It's this ancient Rome built by Appius Claudius, which is the name Appia the Appian Way, which went from Rome to the southeast part of Italy, that's how the, the troops and the merchants got from A to B. This would have been the same road, the same stones that Julius Caesar, that Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, would have walked down. I've walked down them personally. You can still see the grooves in the road. You've been to Pompeii as well, correct? See, I have been twice. you remember never seen the cart grooves down yeah. the alleyways? Absolutely. Now
2: that would have been made by thousands and thousands of carts coming into that city before it was buried under volcanic ash. And that tells you about the mercantile activity of that city prior to seventy 79- nine. Yeah,
1: the Romans really were they were mercantile. They were traders. They were innovators. People think the Romans invented a lot. They really just absorbed a lot. They they were great assimilators. They that were adapters. Adapters. That will innovate as adapters, assimilators. Yeah. These are the traits that the Greeks were the and the Egyptians were the inventors and thinkers. Yeah. The, the thinkers, the philosophers, the inventors, the creators the Romans were not prejudiced in this way, as many other ancient empires were. We're going to impose our culture on you. The right. Romans were more like, "What do you have that we can use and absorb?" Like as a gladius from the,
2: their primary sword.
1: Exactly or what right, is and Spanish, exact Spanish steel. That exactly right. Yeah. So, well, and I think that
2: that's another highlight point to talk about. Why were people traveling in the? We talked yes, about
1: who. why were people traveling. Why
2: were they traveling? We can again break this down to Cadbury. We've got diplomacy. Trade relations were going on. There were diplomats and their entourages going back and forth, settling wars, starting wars, all kind of stuff. Of course, like I said, we got to highlight trade because it was continual. It was the lifeblood of Greece and what is now Europe in general. War carried it. So you had people traveling for war because of borders, and they had to. And then lastly, where it comes in, the smallest, is for leisure. Unfortunately, leisure was not something that either people could afford to do or roll the dice on doing. Going out into the countryside sounds like a good day out to us, but you have to imagine that there were people back then that were just waiting behind the trees to take people out, and that was their whole thing. There was no 911 to call. There's nobody in around for 30 miles if your family gets attacked. So if you are out in the countryside, the best idea is to hire protection or to be an ex-soldier. Those two things were your best guarantee of
1: safety. So those were the risks. Let's just discuss real quick. What were the risks? As you say, I'm a family, middle class, merchant class. I'm traveling for work. Other than that, I'm not traveling for leisure travel as we do today because Mm. it's just too dangerous. That's the main obstacle. Too much of a chance unless you went so
2: low key and so out of the way. But again, this is we're talking about such a rarity that it doesn't even
0: come up that often. Well was there travel in caravans of large groups of people then? Oh absolutely
2: migrancy is absolutely a huge category where people were settling place to place or having been relocated place to place. But I think if we're tying that into they wanted to be there or they had to be there, more often than not, we're looking at had to.
1: Well, what are some instances where people wanted to travel? You mentioned the Roman elite. What about something like Julius Caesar traveling through Alexandria to see the tomb of Alexander the Great? How often did those kind of trips happen and an aristocrat going from villa to villa?
2: Sure. Well, think about what they had as far as resources. Virtually infinite. When Julius Caesar was in Alexandria, it was to settle a squash with him and Cleopatra in order to form an alliance. And basically secure an annexation for the territory. So when you got somebody like that who has total control of the state, man, you can go anywhere. He went inside the tomb. He actually looked at the body, and not only that, his successor, his grandnephew Octavian, who became Augustus, put a gold diadem that he had fashioned for him on his skeleton. Nobody else is going around with that kind of access. The best you can say is that people could appreciate it. Now, one thing I do want to highlight that that drove people more than any kind of let's go to a beach. Let's uh, go enjoy the countryside. And that was religion. Going to pilgrimage sites, temples, old associations, worshiping the gods, asking for blessings. That drove people to take enormous chances, such as going to the Temple of Apollo, Inside of Greece, inside of Delphi, with people thousands of miles. Just to ask the question, will I get pregnant? Will my son live a long life? So on and so forth. That they had to pay things, that they had to wait outside. And of course, it was based on a status system. But again, what were the motivations for travel? And I guess my main point being is that we as modern people should have an appreciation for the fact that we can travel wherever we want. Without these stipulations, without these worries, and to have businesses like Guidester that can help direct you in places that you're unfamiliar with. Nice and plug. Is an invaluable thing to have.
1: Right. Yep. Good plug. And he's right. Guidester's going to guide you from your first flight to your last night. Guidester's going to help you travel right. I've heard such a thing before, is what I'm going to think. maybe we even do a tune from your first flight to your last night. Guide it did work. To- It could work. I could see it. I could see a 1950s black and white getting on an airplane and going across. That's what people want. The great cats, the
0: experience. How much of the ancient world in what Rome set up to move around the empire, how much of that kind of structural... I guess I would say structural analysis has been used to lay out roads here in the States or to determine we're going to put this road from this point to this point rather than be some trail that people wandered around through. It seems like Rome really had some thought processes going on to really expedite some things in a much different kind of way.
2: That's a fascinating point. And you'd kind of be surprised to know that in Greece or in ancient Rome, even at its height, there were no such thing as street names even inside a city, of a million plus people. So you had to memorize where something was in relation to another in order to get yourself home. I recognize that, therefore it's that way. I know how to get here, therefore it's that way. And again, in a city like Rome, you never went outside at night unless you were up to no good yep. or had to do something ultimately necessary. But and Jillian, I guess what I could say, and what I just want to – to finish this question, is that the design structure for what we use is the road system. We can legacy that to Rome instantly, but how they laid it out is a product of much later centuries. Okay.
1: So I'm looking at a map of ancient Rome of all right. the provinces and the height of the Roman Empire, uh-huh. which... Which would have been yeah, you've got it on your wall there, but I've got mine pulled up on the. Computer it's got here. every road that you can imagine. Oh, you've there. You go. That's I need that map. Yeah, you got a detailed one there. I'll send you the link. It's amazing. So, in the height of the Roman Empire, yeah. second century A.D., this uh-huh. is the. During the reign of Emperor Trajan, when he obviously went conquering the Parthian Empire, which well, Hadrian actually conquered, but he also went to the Parthian Empire. But, but Hadrian pulled back the troops. Yeah. But but that was the fullest extent of the Roman Empire. So yes, he conquered Dacia, which they kept. Right. But he also went into Parthia and conquered. But then Hadrian basically said that was dumb and left left all that. But Trajan was the emperor that was at the zenith of the Roman Empire. So mm-hmm. when you see these Roman maps of ancient Rome, this is the, the time period we're talking about. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: let's get a, let's get a visual here. So I'm in the far northwest Britannia. I'm in Londinium and I, for whatever reason, want to get to Syria or I want to get to Alexandria, Egypt. Mm-hmm. I want to go from Londinium to Alexandria, Egypt. Walk us through just a quick two things, the mode of transportation that I would okay. use. And timeline, how long might it take me to get from Londinium to Alexandria? And, and what would that look like? What would I be traveling on?
2: Okay, if I may inquire about the variables, how many people are traveling?
1: Let's pretend that I'm an aristocratic. Maybe I'm a general. I'm not traveling. I'm not moving troops. But I'm going from, I've been given a special assignment. So I'm going with a small company of men, let's say.
2: So are we under the assumption that you are the most protected you could be and have access to the resources to get you where you need to go.
1: Yes, we're assuming both of those things.
2: Then what you would do is you would actually go to and start based on land in an entourage caravan going from what is now London to Dover. From Dover, you are going to get down from the cliffs and you're going to take a rather lengthy ride along the European coastline around what is now France, Portugal, crossing Gibraltar, and then getting into what is now Libya. You're going to end up in Carthage, what is old Carthage? Rome had total control over that by then, and it was a major port. So, so
1: I would not have gone through Gaul. I would not have taken the land route through Gaul. You know, unnecessary. Unless unnecessary. you absolutely have
2: to, you always take sea. Right. So I'm on she a ship. Faster, more efficient. The only problem, and many did encounter
1: storms. Right. And these were not vessels that could survive a full on. So the Romans, this is a good point. The Romans were many things, but seafarers was never one of them. They were never great sailors. Copy
2: from the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians. The
1: Carthaginians were seafarers. The Greeks were, but the Romans never really seemed to get a handle on that. They just didn't, they were, they were soldiers. The Romans at heart were land-based soldiers. They really weren't seafarers.
2: They didn't even bother inventing a Navy until the Punic War. Right. They saw no need of it. Why do you, I need to construct these vessels and make all these efforts to do this? But when Carthage arises as a rival power, and the only way is to get there across the straits, then all of a sudden you've got necessity. We don't know how to build ships before. So they look to the people who they know build ships the best. And yeah, then that-
1: a, there, I think there's a moment, in fact, that was the stalemate of the first Punic War, which was the War of Sicily. The Romans there could was- not be beat on land. They were too strong, but the Carthaginians couldn't be beat on land. See, and so there was this stalemate until I think if I remember the story correctly, a boat ran aground, a Carthaginian boat, and the Romans reconstructed that boat. Exactly. And they reverse engineered the navy. Yeah,
2: something that actually speaks to something we do nowadays. They saw something that was more valuable. They had no control over before. They reverse modeled it and they they made the largest fleet in the ancient world. And like you said, it wasn't because of their own design. They got it from, at least from what I'm aware of, four different sources, and then just combined them in the ways that were most form-fitted. And then that served as their navy. But ultimately, their navy served to end piracy in the Mediterranean because it was just running wild. So having eliminated that threat is one of the main things that secured them an empire, and that's one of the things that's rarely talked about. Most of what is the Roman Empire is, is water.
1: They call it Mussolini and t- coined the term Nostra Mare, which is RC.
2: Or Mare Nostrum.
1: Yep, exactly. And that's how the Romans thought about it. So let's get back. We're on this journey. We're going from London to Alexandria. We've just yep. crossed around the horn, yep. or not the horn, but the tip through Gibraltar. So we're at, through Carthage. Yes. We at Carthage. Yes. From Carthage to
0: Syria. And Carthage, for Judea. those
1: that don't know, Carthage is North Africa. Yes, yes.
2: What is now the tip of Libya. So you have to get another ship from there, sail along Crete,
1: land in Judea, and then move north. Well, from Judea, you'd move south, right? To, Are you going Ale- into Syria? No, we're going into Alexandria. We're going oh, to Alexandria.
2: Sorry, then I need to
1: redirect. Okay, so you wouldn't even <laughs> you go from Crete, right? Right into that. You'd go right into the port of Alexandria. So most, as you say, of if I'm going from one side of the Roman Empire to the other, I'm going to be a ship most of the time. I'm going to be on a ship. It can hold
2: more. It's safer. It's faster. And for those three reasons, anybody who could afford it would do. But I do want to highlight something that might give some relevancy to your audience, and that's the uh, HBO show, Rome. If you ever want to see what a sea voyage was like or understand what travel was like, or just see it from their perspective, whether elite or peasant, or you know plebeian. That show gives a very accurate representation of what it was like. And we've seen Jack the show as well as I do. Even when they make the voyage and they have all the money from uh, the tip of Italy into Egypt, it was a nightmare for them. So, just because well, yeah. you had a lot of money didn't mean you were going to come out on top. And right. so. There were dangers for everybody across the board. Now, one thing that I think you'll find interesting because you work this job is that the concept of insurance has been around since classical antiquity. People have levied their wares against a fiscal fee and paid money lenders to protect it against the voyage. And sometimes it worked out. But you got to imagine it wasn't standardized, so sometimes you had a complaint. What complaint do you have? And you had to show up about it. But this is the way that trade operated, which was the main function of travel. Again, I want to reiterate that leisure travel, though enjoyable, and many people did have a chance to get out
1: once in a while, was by far the least frequent. And it would have been done, as you said, by the aristocrats. Someone yeah. like Hadrian, for example, who's an emperor he probably traveled more than any roman emperor ever he was known as the traveling emperor Mm -hmm. and again hadrian's the one hadrian's wall it's what he's known for which i actually found ironic of all the temples and all the things that he built which were thousands this is the thing that he's remembered for i think he would not be too happy about that but so how long would it take this trip from londinium to alexandria weeks months how long do you think it would take in total time, based on the legs that we've talked about, we are talking about at least... So this is something you can't just pack your bags and head and, out. And this is not
2: a comfortable trip either. Even if you were by land, it would be much worse and much more forbearing from the topography. If it's by sea and you don't have your sea legs, you are going to be so ill that you can't imagine. It. So we have, a, again, I, I, I just feel like I need to highlight the fact that Yes, even for the wealthy elites, they got around, but there are so many things that we have now that if even if I took rich people and transplanted them back in time, they would not like the accommodation. It right. would be very hard on them.
1: It's a perilous journey, it's an uncomfortable journey. It's there it's marred by obstacles. There's a lot of things to consider there. Sure. But
2: it didn't work out that way forever. I don't want to be all doom and gloom either.
1: Sure. Yeah. And there, there was more wildness to nature and the sea. And a lot of the stories of these Leviathan, these ancient sea creatures, which could have been true. We've, we have, over time, hunted a lot of the big game over the last couple thousand years. But it would have been interesting, too. It's worth noting that there would have been things lurking in the Mediterranean that just no longer lurk there, that would have been hunted out or made extinct over the growth of human population. And so I think there would have been a thrill maybe to it as well, as we would have seen, for as extensive as the Roman Empire was, their population was nothing compared to the population of Europe and North Africa now. So it would have been more wild, more of an adventure. It would have been a real adventure. In every respect. And
2: I guess that's another thing to highlight, too, is that when were people traveling? We have luxury. Now, if it's winter, spring, summer, fall, you can move wherever you like. But in the ancient world, you could only move between any given place in spring right. and right before the cusp of the fall. Other than that, like you were just putting yourself in an extremers, and much more so depending on where you were geographically. So we're, we're talking about who... We looked at the why, the where, like I said, I guess if we're covering that one, most common are countrysides, villas by the elites, palaces by the ultra elites, and their entourage. Religious sites were abundant throughout the ancient world, and monuments set up by specific people, and believe it or not, other families or even independent individuals would just be so moved by it that they would take these voyages, life and limb. To go see them. That kind of covers the gamut about why things were going on in the ancient world and how they are different from how we conceptualize travel nowadays. But as a final note, one of the things that I would like to highlight is why we're able to do this, and that is another aspect of ancient travel that is very frequent, and that is cartography, the ability to make a map based on exploration. Right. Our maps did not just come to us by some satellite in the sky. They have been going on and people have been producing abundant research it upon themselves to chart this planet for thousands of years. Two of the greatest ones I can think of are Aristosthenes in the 3rd century B.C., who was also the man who proved that the Earth is spherical by sticking a stick in the ground and watching the orbit of the sun and predicting it based on the shadow and ptolemy who was another greek in the second century ce who made one of the most accurate maps of the ancient world that research through the centuries was built upon and has now been collected into all the little gps things that anybody can look up on their phone now and we owe it to these people to recognize the input and the contributions that they gave to us that we now use with a push of a button.
0: I have a question. I want to go back a little bit, Brian. What do these roads look like? How wide are they? How were they constructed? Were they stone all the way? Were they just dirt? Were they gravel? There were, there were many, many types,
2: and I guess I have to ask you what time period we talking? If we're talking about the Roman Empire where roads were at their peak, then there were actually several layers. Done, and most of it, the vast majority, by soldiers. It was not slave labor. It was not people they were forced to do it. Roman, the military needed ease of access, and that ease of access was given to them in what was called the miles possum, which means the thousand uh, mile, or sorry, the mile marker. So a Roman mile is different from a modern mile by uh, about a third. And so what they would have to do is uh, plot a trajectory, get an engineer who was basically a surveyor, chart a course for the road, and then they would start digging. So there would be a trench work done, and that would lay a uh, very fine stone on it, and then there would be another layer of thick stone, and then they would compact it as it went down. The top layer was a thick gravel stone that was filled in by sediments or by some kind of, it's the concrete mixture that kind of makes it smooth on top. And then after that, after it dries, you're able to travel on it quite easily. As it wears down and we see the Roman roads that exist today, that, that top layer that made it so smooth has largely been eroded. And, and I think Jack can speak to it. We've seen those roads and we know what they once looked like in their pristine, but now it's those giant cobblestones that we see that have been trod upon for millions of footsteps. But those roads at their height would have been extremely easy. To say revolutionary for its time is almost an understatement because comparatively on those dirt tracks and everything that you're talking about or having to take what is essentially machetes and knives and invent your own path, that was uh, a challenge to say the least. Yes, thousands of miles of Roman road connected all edges of the empire, facilitated trade, military activity, and everything else, was the lifeblood, the very vein system. Yeah, of, that's,
1: it's worth underscoring that. If you go, the best place to see is either Pompeii, but really probably, I think, Rome. Just 10 minutes yeah. south of Rome. Yeah, the Appian. 10, so via Appian Antica, or the Appian Way. Go to Rome, see it. This is what a Roman road looked like. Now, keep in mind, though, to Brian's point, th- there was a top layer that was smooth, Now you're going to get these big volcanic Mm -hmm. stones. So it doesn't look like it was, but it would have been, but it would have been that same kind of surface, but it would have been flat. So just when you go to the Appian way, imagine, and there's parts of the Appian way that are the actual stones, very large sections of it that are the authentic same robe. The, The only difference is it's been eroded. So it has a groove to it. It's, I've ridden a moped on it and a bike on it and that's not easy. Boom, boom. But it wouldn't have been like that. It would have been as smooth as silk, smooth as a baby's bottom, and you would have just glided right across that. And you would have gotten from A to B 10 to 20 times quicker than you would have otherwise. I'll just take a quick pause. As
2: we stated, every kind of road that has ever been made in America, our roads are short-lived compared. What are we repairing roads now? every two, three years? I know. Asphalt, mm-hmm. and then it just erodes. Now, I do want to be fair that the technology is different. All that weight and all that rubber repeatedly making that motion is not what the ancient world had. So there's a reason it erodes. But I just think that the concept of roads could be
1: rethought. Well, there's two things, though. Like you said, to be fair, we have millions of more people. Right. And we have millions of more vehicles. Right. Right. And we have so we have more people using the roads, and we have these vehicles exactly. with rubber, and, and then we use salts. The salts really. I'm in property right. management, in a, in addition to my travel business, so I know what salt does to roads. It's not good. They well, didn't have mm-hmm. thrown out how they're throwing salt. The um, other part is that it creates jobs by having. That's true. That's true. But you're right. Just to visualize. A road, Roman road, the Appian way, the Appian Seek was built 2,000 years ago. It's still there. It's still in use. Still there.
2: And And those reasons, when people walk on it, they're walking on all the reasons we talked about. The military walked on there. Normal people walked on there. Merchants were there. Famous people were there. Yeah, and you
1: said it earlier, the HBO series Rome, which was about the rise and fall of Julius Caesar and then the rise of Augustus. It, they, there's a there's a few moments. One in particular where I think Titus Pullo is coming down the road, and uh, there's there's soldiers, then there's merchants, there's people on the side of the road, there's even some dead bodies. Like it, it just gives you this visual of what it would have looked like. Another thing worth mentioning, which you will see today at the Appian Way, is the Roman roads is where they the Romans built a lot of their burial mounds, their monuments to their dead. Now you had to have money, so it was mostly the merchant and the higher class. But these Roman roads would have been lined with statues and memorials and monuments, some of which you can still see today.
2: I'm so glad that you brought that up, Jack. You couldn't have tied that better if you tried. Do you know that those funerary pyres, those statues, those monuments are the result of funerary guilds that formed the earliest parts of insurance in Roman society? That's the reason that they exist. That's the reason why they're so close to the wall is because for a long time, And for most of their society, it was illegal to bury a dead body inside the walls for, you know, hygienic reasons, sanitary reasons, among all. So the Appian Way was one of the earliest places they could do that. And that was funded by guilds, which provided money for widows or people who were left homeless to pay for those monuments. The funerary guilds were some of the earliest that were established for insurance. And some of those famous monuments that you can still visit on the Appian Way, the ones that you've walked at. Were set up by those guilds. Insurance has been a part of travel forever. People have always looked to other people to get a greater understanding about where they're going and how they can do it efficiently. And I think that's a commonality that everybody can understand.
1: That's beautiful. That's just amazing. Just how we've connected travel in the ancient world to travel in the modern world and tying all these pieces together. So fascinating, Brian. We, we, I think that that's a pretty good place to wrap it up. I, I think we've touched on the modes of ancient travel, who was traveling, why they were traveling, how they got there, how long it took, some of the dangers and perils that were presented to them, giving some specifics and things that people can go see today, like the Via Antica and Ro- uh, roads in, in Greece and Rome and throughout the empire.
2: I suppose my final thought would be, if you can travel, if it's something that's within your scope, take advantage of the opportunities that they did not have in the ancient
0: world. That's a great comment. That's a very good comment because we tend to isolate ourselves much like they did back then, but they were limited by security and finances, which is not necessarily the case nowadays for our culture.
2: Absolutely. There's much more security now. And the world is open and there's so much to see. And not to do a shameless plug, but that's what Guidester does. So I hope that people realize <laughs> that Jack is is true. I've been Jack's earliest supporter. Actually, I was on the ground before Guidester was Guidester. And were- I believe in what Jack does. He is true to what he does
1: and he has the experience to help people out. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, you were part of our the creation process. It's we did some things together, didn't we? We went up to We've we should, done some things. We should end with one cool story of our travels. Let's talk about Lenda. No. No, no. Let's talk about the car going north with the oh. uh, the a car. I think that was half my
2: fault. For having to pack up everything that I had inside a a little Euro car and then head north on the castle tour. No,
1: it was the car rental's fault. They didn't have any cars left when we showed up, and so all they had – so just real quick. So Brian and I are ending our school year, and we're like, okay, we need to take a final trip somewhere cool. So we went to northern Wales, which is beautiful Snowdonia, which is where Stairway to Heaven, the song, was written about – Beautiful castles, medieval castles, gorgeous scenery, amazing culture. And the Northwest is where the ancient language of Welsh is still widely spoken. So Brian and I are like, we got to go see that. We got to go see what's going on up there. So we rent a car college kids, post-grad college kids, but still graduate students, don't have much money. And we rent a car. We show up to the Enterprise and they go, sorry, mate, we have no cars left. And we had the trip booked. We're like, this is not good. So he goes, what about this? And it was one of their utility vehicles that had enterprise written on the side of it. It was a van, two seater van. It was Eurostar. It was Eurostar. Okay. And so a two seater van with just like a, like an actual van in van. the back that was covered. And so what we did, we took the stuff out, put a mattress in the back and that <laughs> became our moving B and B and literally. Well,
2: tell them where we slept outside on yeah. our last end.
1: That's, I was going to say, we're finding fields and roads and just anywhere we want just park and go in the back and it was comfy actually it was we had yeah. this big mattress double-sized mattress and for what it was i was surprised that was as comfortable as it yeah was. we got some good sleep but the coolest as brian said the coolest thing was it, we were in conway mm-hmm. and we parked next to a castle so conway is a city on the coast in northern wales absolutely beautiful it's a wall biggest?
2: And largest
1: most yeah. famous of the edwardian castle i actually think carnarvon might be bigger as far as a castle goes i'm not it sure
2: i guess it's the scope that it has the exterior wall that makes it larger right it, connecting bridge that we went across but you're probably right i think marlin in its scope is probably the largest
1: yeah i think carnarvon and carnarvon is where the prince of wales is knighted actually yeah. just a fun fact that's why they call him the prince of wales is yeah. edward the first who built these castles these ancient medieval castles he killed the last king – actually exiled the last king of uh, Wales, which they didn't have a king of Wales. It was a prince of Wales, mm-hmm. Owain Glindor, I think it was, and they exiled him, and Edward I made his pregnant wife travel to Carnarvon where he was building this castle. He gave birth to his son, Edward II, and held him up and said, this is your new prince of Wales. Ever since then, the eldest son of the monarch has been deemed the Prince of Wales, and ever since then, that tr- that traditional ceremony happens in Carnarvon Castle, including the current Prince of Wales, Charles, was knighted there or given his title and honorific there. But anyway, we're yeah, getting off topic, easy. and I I could talk all day about British well, history. Oh, we could do
2: this all day. Yeah, we could do another we podcast could travel about travel at any era.
1: So Brian and I are not don't have a lot of money, so we're not buying at this time, don't aren't looking for a hotel and anything, but we have this van that has a mattress in it. Mm -hmm. And so we pull up into Conway late at night and we literally just park in front of the castle. Not sure it was allowed. this is why i love britain nobody gave us trouble this is a nobody
2: said a word but i'm guaranteed that was not an official parking spot
1: probably not but this is a (laughs) great this is a grade one there is
2: no way i've got pictures there is no way that we park legally
1: so we park there and we're just hanging out at night looking at the castle just staring at it and the next morning we wake up we open the doors to our sleeping fortress and there it is. There's Conway Castle. I mean,
2: it's up on a hill, too. Right. You're looking up at it like it's Camelot. Yeah. And that's what we woke up to. And if I don't, I think I remember this right, too. The first thing that Jack, he always wants to do, is grab an English breakfast. Got to do what, it. Jack's notorious for it. And then Got we sick. actually ended up going into Conway, and we explored it. Now, the beautiful thing about Conway, as compared to other places, is that it's all ruins. And you can go anywhere throughout. It's multiple towers and structures. And me and Jack must have spent God, four, five hours in there just, just exploring. Bebopping. Bebopping. And, just... and that's one of the, and this is travel and that's what it meant for us. That's something we'll never forget. Exploration. Tying it all together from what we've experienced and how we've experienced to understanding how it meant in the ancient world and what you do now as a business. It all just comes together. So I hope right. that people will take those same opportunities.
1: Yeah, it's a linear line of human history and culture yeah. that, that no. brings no. us <laughs> all to where we are today. And living it, experiencing it, understanding it ties you to yourself more, ties you to the world, and gives you these long lasting experiences, as you say. So it's
2: I always tell my students, history as a field, a hundred years ago, used to be esoteric and only given to the elites. Only the educated were allowed to know what happened in the past. Only the educated were allowed to make conjectures about what the past actually meant. And that's not the case anymore. We have thousands and thousands of historians who are considering the past at different perspectives, and that's just one of the beautiful things about it. So history can not only show you who you are, it can show you who the world is, and it can lead to experiences that you would never
1: have
0: otherwise. Brian Cunningham, thanks for joining us today on Virtual Vacation with Guidester.
1: Appreciate you coming on, man. What a a great episode. Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Virtual Vacation with Guidester. Take time to look at the show notes on the website for everything that was mentioned on this episode. Virtual Vacation with Guidester is produced by Motif Media Group. For Jack Bauman and Virtual Vacation with Guidester, I'm Arnold Stricker.